You're listening to the Artistic Finance Podcast, show 55. On today's show, I interview two people, set and garden designer Danielle Worley and lighting designer Beth Taramsha. We talk about their experiences buying homes in New York City in the early 2000s, what has happened since, and what they expect to do with their homes moving forward. We also discuss factors that affect home purchases, including climate change, quality of life, and inequity. If you're thinking about purchasing a home, listen to these artists who have lived and thrived through the experience. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to my patrons. As always, I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome set designer Danielle Worley and lighting designer Beth Taramsha. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. For people listening in the future, we are recording this on April 22nd, 2021. So we are amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. We're amidst a Black Lives Matter slow burn across the world and a Stop Asian Hate campaign in the U.S., could you each give us an introduction to yourselves? Sure. Um, I'm Danielle Worley. I'm a set and garden designer and uh, an advocate and activist in um, a couple different arenas with the Broadway Green Alliance and sustainability and also with design action. And um, like you said, um, working for um, equity in, with BIPOC designers and BIPOC uh, people around this country and the world. And I'm Beth Taramsha. I'm formerly a theatrical lighting designer, and now I'm an architectural lighting designer and a mother. And a mother. (laughs) And uh, if you guys have listened to my podcast before, you might know that this next question is my favorite of all. And (laughs) also, you don't have to answer any of this that you don't want to. But the question is, could you describe your demographics for us? (laughs) Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, I'm, um, I go by she, they pronouns. Uh, I am white. I am 50. I have a, a master's and I have a horticultural certificate and I'm working on a second landscape architecture, landscape design certificate. I, I was laughing because I was young ladied yesterday on a conference call and I had to shut that person down <laughs> And I, I will tell you what I told that contractor, and that is, I am middle-aged, I am not a young lady, and I am white, I live in New York, been in New York now for 25 years, oh, I have an MFA, I have a BFA in lighting design, all theater-based, I have my LC accreditation, which is lighting certified, which is a part of the architectural certification, and I'm also a member of the IES, Illuminating Engineering Society. Your creative personalities. So, Danielle, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Live events. You know, I, I think these days I... I like live outdoor events that have mass people. So it's like um, not a stage and not a particular performance. It's more groups of people getting together for a particular purpose. And that could involve social distancing. So it is definitely outdoor based. As my somebody, uh, a designer, uh, landscape designer said, uh, landscape design is the slowest of the performing arts. That's great. (laughs) 
my favorite event, live event, is some sort of experiential experience, which is a bit redundant. I would say that it's something unique and different and not commonplace, whatever that is. That Van Gogh virtual experiment, is that too too commonplace for you or that's what you like? No, I have tickets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now your financial personalities. Are you bad or good with money? I would probably say I'm, I'm decent with money. I'm not wonderful, but I'm certainly not bad. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Um, my husband is, is really good with money. And so he, uh, you know, we've been together for 25 years. And so he has, I, by watching him, I've really realized, I've learned how, how to manage money much better. Definitely. But no, it was not natural. All right, Beth, are you good or bad with money? Generally speaking, I am good with money slash very good. It's ebbed and flowed through the course of my life. And I would say after graduate school, I got really bad with money coming out of graduate school with a lot of debt for a variety of reasons. And then I've definitely have been on the uptick since maybe about five years after graduate school. All right. Now to talk about real estate. And and the reason we're talking about real estate is because in in episode one, so this is episode 55, Peter Kazarowski, the lighting designer, mentioned that he purchased a home and then sold it. And it was a great financial decision. And then I talked with painter Destiny Powell. She invests in real estate. And then even last week, we had David Jacques, who talked about his home in Long Beach, California. Real estate just comes up over and over again, playing into the financial picture of people's lives. So my question for both of you is, how did you guys get involved in real estate? And what has that journey looked like for you? And we'll start with Danielle. My family is from the Midwest and um, I come from a like, middle class, working class background. And so owning a home was really important. It was sort of the idea of like what the American dream was. And this is how you could sort of, you know, save and, and move up a little bit. And um, so this kind of ethos was very, I would say, instilled in me at a really young age. Um, I remember this as almost as early as like five or six, you know, like knowing the importance of like owning a home. Um, which seems odd as I say it now, but, um, and so uh, in my twenties, I actually did make some money. I was a scenic artist and um, was in the union, was in 816, local 816 in San Francisco when it was 816 and um, made, and this was the dot-com boom in the nineties in San Francisco. And so there was a lot of work, tons of work. And I did end up saving money. I, I had my own, sort of my own business in San Francisco for six years as a as a scenic artist and I had a small company and we would do a lot of television and a lot of industrials. And um, anyway, so I saved a little bit of money. Um, and then when I moved to New York, but I wasn't able to buy a place then or didn't buy a place then, but moving to New York in 99 was when I first started to think about doing that. Um, and uh, so we started looking in 99. Of course, in, in that, that's when I was coming to grad school at NYU. In 1999 in New York, you could afford a place, right? It was, it was very, I mean, compared to anything since then, it was really reasonable. Now, um, I didn't end up buying a pace in 99, but did in 2000. And even the price jump from 99 to 2000 was, um, was a rather significant jump. I think I should jump in because Danielle and I were looking at the exact same time and we can relate it. I too came from a middle-class family. Ironically, I grew up in Detroit and my parents had bought their house for 17,000 in 
1974, and they tried to sell it 10 years later. And I learned an opposite lesson of Danielle. They had put it on the market for 55000 because it was Detroit during the 80s. They had a really hard time selling their home. And so they ended up selling their house for $5,000 more than what they bought it for. So for $22,000, three years after they put it on the market. So for me, real estate has never been a way to necessarily increase your financial well-being. My perception of it is it's a large debt that you're taking on and you have to be able to sell your home. And it's not necessarily a given that you're going to be able to sell whatever piece of real estate you buy. I, I think there's a fallacy with the American dream that, oh, you just buy a place and you upgrade and it's really easy to buy and sell. And because of my parents' experience, I have a very jaded perspective on that. When I moved to New York in 1996, I rented for a couple of years. And when I went back to graduate school, Danielle and I were in graduate school together. And we started to have the conversation about buying an apartment here in the city because it was so attainable. Before I went to graduate school, I had started looking and you could buy a place in Long Island City for 70 grand for a studio. I mean, who couldn't come up with 20% of that if you were parents? It was a lot easier. I mean, still as a working artist, it would be hard, certainly. 1999, I, I was able to find a place before Danielle And I was able to to purchase a place for a relatively low sum on the Upper East Side, no less, which made the commute to NYU uh, pretty short and sweet, unlike my colleagues or fellow students who were traversing in from the boroughs. The next thing would be, what was the process of buying that first place? And then what have you done since then? So let's see, I ended up buying a place in 2000. And so what I did is I had assistance from my parents. They gave us, and my husband and I, but it was right before we were, it was before we were married. Um, so this was 2000 and we were married in 2003. Um, we were able to save up $10,000 from our jobs in San Francisco. And then my parents loaned us $20,000. And so we put a $30,000 down payment on a 160000 um, dollar apartment, yeah, $160,000 apartment in Park Slope. That was way over our budget, actually. Our budget was around, we started in 99 with a budget under 100. And then by the next year, things had jumped so much. And that, that time in the, in the late 90s, the way, um, you know, just did things as they go ebb and flow. We, uh, yeah, so it was 160000 and uh, that was August of 2000. We lived there for 15 years, and it was a 395-square-foot apartment on the top floor in a, um, a Park Slope brownstone. It was a wonderful place to live, a co-op. Uh, I loved living there, but it was 395 square feet. So you can imagine, you know, having, um, and it was sort of the busiest years of my career in theater. And it was very, uh, you know, it was extremely tight. <laughs> we had a lot of, and I worked out of the home. So a lot of assistants, uh, associates working in the apartment. And um, so that's the way we we live for, you know, until, um, until 2014, 2015. What happened there? Did you move and... How did that work out? In 2014, we sort of realized like this is too small. Like we're actually got to 
got to find a place. So we moved into a rental, but it was, t- you know, all of our stuff and everything. There's no way we could renovate. So we ended up getting a rental, um, ended up being for a year. It took us a year to renovate our little apartment to get it back in sort of working order to show to anybody. And um, during that year, we um, got a place a block away that had a yard. And it was, it was the, it was the yard that all of a sudden was like, oh, actually, we had actually tried to buy the apartment underneath us and and do a spiral staircase between the two, but ran into extreme difficulties, both with the seller of that place and also getting loans. And it just became actually impossible for us to do. And um, so, you know, sort of, uh, this, we were, you know, kind of, kind of licking our wounds in a way in this other rental apartment. And then we realized like, what are we, why do we want to hold on to this neighborhood? Like that was, that was sort of the issue is like, oh, we didn't want to leave that building. We didn't leave, want to leave that neighborhood. And once we got into the yard, we realized, you know what, that me that's um, it's sort of inconsequential. Let's just, let's just try something else. And so then it kind of launched into which is actually a much longer story. So I want Beth to jump in here. I'll tell you about how we got our, our, the place I live in now. Sure. So, so um, in 1999, I went back to graduate school and my parents at that time, they had both of their children out of the home. They had some spare income. And because I was going back to graduate school and I was going to be going back to graduate school in New York, my parents approached me and they said, look, we'd like to buy an apartment for you. They were willing to put down the down payment. They had the cash for that. I did not. They were actually very generous. They paid for my housing and my maintenance while I was in graduate school. So I didn't have that overhead, but I paid for graduate school myself. Can I just clarify that if you buy an apartment in New York City specifically, it's a little different than a single family home. It's usually a co-op or an organization. So you have to pay a maintenance fee of $500 a month or $1,000 a month or something like that was separate from the mortgage. They were paying your maintenance cost. Correct. Excellent clarification. So my parents were able to come up with a $40,000 down payment or maybe it was only 30,000. I think it was 30 because my apartment cost $120,000. 500 square feet, Upper East Side, junior one bedroom. So what that means for everybody else who doesn't live in New York City is that it's a studio apartment. There is a little section that can, that can be construed as a one bedroom, but it's not technically a formal one bedroom because there's no closet. And that's how bedrooms are defined in New York doesn't have a built-in closet. So I went to graduate school. My parents helped me out while I was in graduate school. After getting out of school, I took over my mortgage, my maintenance payments. I eventually got married and I'm no longer married. So I'm going to refer to him as my ex-husband. My ex-husband and I bought my parents out of the apartment. So we had the place formally appraised. We took over the loan. We had our names on the loan. I gave my parents, I don't know, $150,000, $180,000. I don't know. It was some large chunk of money. And then I owned that apartment with my husband at the time. After a couple of years, my ex-husband was pressuring me to move and he wanted a bigger place. So we bought the apartment that I'm in right now which is a junior two bedroom in Hudson Heights. So it's a one bedroom with a small bedroom that does not have 
a built-in closet. Does that make sense? You're, you're giving me this cloudy look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. I No, I had a question, which is when you bought your parents out and you gave them 150000 that 150000 was the price of the apartment at the time? No, no, that's a great question. So I think the apartment appraised for 240000 So I gave them their down payment back, which I believe was thirty grand. And then we took 240,000 and we divided it by half. And I gave my parents 120,000 or whatever on top of that. That's how I got to the $150,000 number. Got it. So my parents allowed me to keep half of the equity. Got it. Got it. Okay. And then did you just take over paying the mortgage payment or did you sort of like take out a mortgage payment to pay your parents or like, like what was your payment structure uh, every month after you took that over? Uh, well, I had to get a mortgage like an adult. <laughs> so I paid a mortgage every month from, you know, I had a bank loan. Okay. So it was just a brand new mortgage. You sort of closed out the first one and started paying your own. Got it. I am not independently wealthy. There's no trust fund to pull from or anything like that. <laughs> um, all right. So that's where you are now. So should we then jump back to Danielle? about how you got out of your apartment? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, I had the same same trajectory of that there. Uh, in 2010, we refinanced and bought the place for my parents. And so and my husband, uh, Paul, he put, you know, and now it's our name was on that mortgage. And so we gave, we paid them back as well. Not, we weren't as generous as Beth. Um, I think we gave them $50,000 and the um, appraisal well, they had given us 30, but we also, they received a lot in the tax break because they took the tax break of the seven years or the uh, 10 years, I guess. They were taking the tax break off of the apartment. So they saved a lot of money on their taxes. So all in all, it was a greater, um, they, I think they had gotten about, I don't know, 90,000 altogether minus that original 20. So from 2010 to 2014, we owned it. And then in 2014, um, so we put our place on the market um, and sold it pretty quick for 400 and I think it was 35. So we did, you know, it was a good investment from 160 to 435. Now we had taken out a second mortgage for uh, in 2010 for 170, I believe. So we had paid off a certain amount. And then, then of course, when we had gave 50,000 uh, 50, to my parents. So I'm not sure. I think we had made maybe, I think we walked away with around 200 and 200 and something, 230 maybe altogether. Um, and we quite literally took that $230,000 when we sold our place and immediately put it into trying to buy uh, this place that we have now, like quite, quite immediately. So this place that we have now, um, so I started looking for, it took about almost a year, I would say, searching for this place, because I started off doing what people do is just you kind of read all the blogs about housing and, and reading the times and whatnot. And I realized during that, that year, that's kind of all BS. Like, if you want to buy a home, you actually have to do so and within your price range, because we didn't have I me mean, all we had really was that equity. Um, we hadn't really, because I was a designer at that point, I didn't have very, any money, right? No money. And um, Paul, my husband is a stagehand at BAM or was a stagehand at BAM. And so, you know, a lot of the in our income was his. And so um, we, and if you read New York State real estate, they will tell you there's no way you can, uh, a middle-class person can afford a real estate in New York. I mean, it's like, oh, it's impossible. And it's not impossible. And so during the course of that year, I really realized like, 
how to fight for a place, how to find a place, how to do it on your own, how not to believe when people tell you it's out of your reach. And um, to to get to the point where when we got our place, I remember very, you know, I was going through Street Easy constantly, like literally every single day for at least two to three hours a day combing through Street Easy. I found this place. It went up on Friday, July 30th or so, July 29th, um, 2014. And um, I called them within three hours of it going up. And then we got, it was, you know, this is a very, I live in Midwood, Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, a very religious neighborhood. Um, the Shabbos is on Friday. So they ended up having showing on Friday, but a very short uh, showing. And um, so we, we were the first people here and we had seen so many places that were not going to work. And so the, um, it became super, like my husband within probably 10 minutes was like, we have to put an offer on this place. This was um, this was the day before we were going on a vacation, camping for two weeks in um, Arizona or Utah, and so we were like, okay, we're gonna figure this how to do this. And you know, the next day was August first. Everybody in New York City goes away for August. It's a Saturday. We're trying to get a loan on a Saturday in August first. <laughs> we we went to every single bank in Brooklyn that was open to try to secure some kind of that really initial loan that just says they'll, I forget what it's called at this point, but they just, yeah, the pre-approved. Finally, after tracking our all day long, we finally get this loan. Um, and um, we got our application in at 5 p.m. on that Saturday, literally 24 hours after we saw the apartment. And then we hopped on a plane that night at six to go to Utah <laughs> um, for two weeks. So, and, and then by Monday, they had accepted our offer. And so we spent the next two weeks trying to buy a home from basically our, my cell phone in a internet cafe in, in Mohab, Utah, because we had no internet service at the campgrounds. Um, and so every, all of our files, all of our, like every single piece of financial information that we had, which we never believed that we could afford it. It was on the market for 700 and something 738 maybe and um it was above our our asking so um anyway that's where i'll, I'll stop with that the, you uh, mentioned that you you know you were going online you were reading the times looking for things and that you couldn't afford it but that's all bs like if i were to buy a place in new york city this is how i imagine it would go is i would go online look at the listings until i found a place that was in my price range and then try to make that happen is it? Am I looking at places that are too out of my price range and sort of like ignoring them? And I maybe I should take a second look at them. Or what do you mean by it's all all BS? Like what did you do differently? Okay, so what I think generally what we do is we don't we actually all narrow our parameters too quickly, and so we believe things that people tell us, and especially if it's written. If it's written down, we believe it. Um, and so what we started doing actually is. In, in Street Easy, instead of saying, I want a two bedroom apartment, we said we wanted a four bedroom or like the most, you know, like we changed the parameters quite a bit. And so what it did is it actually opened up the, your opportunities really wide. So we, I think what, what originally a lot of folks tend to do, they tend to like, oh, I can't do this because it's too far, or I don't, I can't live there because I don't like that neighborhood or 
the ideas of where of home ownership seem, seem a lot of times unattainable because we in fact put our own boundaries upon ourselves about what is attainable. And I think there's this, particularly with artists, there's this narrative of, I can't afford home ownership. I am a, either a suffering artist or there's a bit of martyrship in not having. And what I say is there's actually, I live in a neighborhood in Midwood, which is, you know, we are not a wealthy neighborhood. This is, I would say, you know, you know, this is an immigrant community. There are, you know, this is not a, a I mean, I'm telling you, this is not, a, people here don't have money. Almost every single person on my block is a homeowner, you know, um, except for the, in the apartment buildings that are rentals. So that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's changing your ethos and your mindset about what home ownership actually means. Beth, do you, since we've talked about Danielle so much, do you have anything to add? You're currently in a place and I assume you're happily in that place and you're not looking to go anywhere anytime soon. That is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've ever been wrong on the podcast. So, I've never been uh, wrong before. <laughs> okay, so so what are you doing? Yeah, so I I have a I have a bright child and I can say that because he's in this program that's part of the New York public system, school system. And he's in the accelerated program. And if you read any of the articles in the New York Times or the Post and you follow education, you know that the, and I hate this term, uh, the talented and gifted program is under fire right now. And the city and the school system is struggling to resolve systemic racism within the education system, which I'm totally in favor of. However, because my son is in this acceler what I prefer to call an accelerated program, Mayor de Blasio has been trying to dismantle this program for the last three or four years now. We have a new chancellor who also wants to bring equity to the education system, which again, I am in favor of. Depending on what happens with this accelerated program may mean I may stay in my apartment for the next 10 years, or I may move out of my apartment to a nearby community uh, that has an excellent school system, that has an accelerated program, or just get more space. Or, or I may buy a country home because my child is slowly but surely getting bigger with each passing year. And Boys get big and they need room, it's particularly over the last year. I've been in a state of flux looking at nearby communities. What, what is the commute like? How much can I get for my money? Do I really want a home? Deal with all the maintenance, horror stories that I hear from Danielle. Do I want a town home where I don't have to deal with fixing the roof or dealing with the gutters or shoveling snow? And and what is the best end result for my son? So right now, I feel like I'm in a state of uh, flux and I can't make any big life decisions, I feel, because I'm at the mercy of the mayor's race and getting somebody in the mayor's office who's actually going to do something. Our mayor has just stopped doing his job. It's hard. I, I'm a big planner and I like to anticipate Things are so chaotic with the accelerated program, it's hard to anticipate which way it's going to go, which way the leaves are going to blow. I can't figure out if I need to sell my apartment and 
go move to Tenafly or Creek Kill or Hastings on Hudson. I just don't have enough information at the moment. So your parents bought a place in Detroit. It did not appreciate greatly. The place you got on Upper East Side did appreciate and helped you get this current place. But you moving out of this current place, you're not looking to turn a profit to capitalize on the appreciation. Your decision for getting moving is more just everything else, but not really. Uh, money plays a part, of course, but that's not your motivating factor now. Well, well, you know, that's a great question because I haven't brought up my whole other thought process behind it. If we do stay, I, I work in architecture. I read a lot of articles about climate change and what's happening with the world and our cities and blah, blah, blah. And what is New York going to really look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? I don't think we know that. And I think the days of people living in their apartment for 30 years and then selling it and making $2 million and that's their nest egg for retirement, I think those days are, are in the process of leaving us. If I don't move due to educational reasons, I do see myself, quote unquote, cashing out within the next 10 years. And my preference is actually to rent. I'm not quite sure what the real estate market is going to be like in 15 and 20 years. And I don't know how hard it's going to be to sell an apartment. People in New York operate under the assumption that they'll always be able to sell. They'll always make money. They're never going to take a loss in their apartment. And I think due to climate change, we're going to start to see the scale tip. I look at my apartment and I think, okay, so how much longer can I actually make a profit from this? You know, I'm intending to make somewhere between, well, I, I hope to make about $400,000 when I do sell my apartment minimum. You know, I, I feel like it's a bet I'm hedging. It's, it's like playing the stock market, really, if you take into account real life events. And I think a lot of people are burying their head in the sand. That makes sense. Is it depressing? <laughs> Have I just ruined your podcast? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. I actually don't think that's depressing at all because you're just describing life in the situation. Because another way to say people are burying their head in the sands is also another way to say there's a lot of things we can't control. The climate change situation, I think the focus so often is about, oh, New York's going to build a water gate or these are the steps that we're going to take to make sure New York stays New York. And it's not about sort of a more reality, maybe, <laughs> that we don't know. There's a lot of unknowns. And, and we actually do know a lot. And all signs are sort of pointing to that's not going to work. <laughs> but, you know, also from a real estate perspective, it's I'm, I'm really hesitant to own anything after, say, 10 to 15 years from now, because I don't think we know what life is really going to be like. And I feel really bad that I've brought a child into the world. And, you know, I mean, it, it all, you know, it's all interconnected. I mean, we want to think of real estate as being something separate, but it's not. It's, I, I just don't know what New York is going to look like for him or anywhere. D Danielle, I'm curious about the place you're in now. Are you planning to stay there or is your motivation when you move, is it going to be based on financials or is it going to be more about your quality of life etc you know i mean i kind of agree with beth in a, in a lot of ways in that and i don't know i mean I, I you know here we are a year into this um 
this pandemic with still no work really. And he was not in theater at least. Both my husband and I are in school for um, horticulture and landscape. And so our goal is to shift, in, is to pivot and work, um, you know, we have a small firm together. And so that we have the freedom to move anywhere else, like we could work in other cities. And so that's, you know, to kind of the goal is a sort of a longer term goal is to, to shift out of the entertainment business and into something that is more sustainable in multiple places in the country. So I do think the way the pandemic has changed New York in, in pretty big ways. I mean, if y'all, you know, if y'all go downtown or midtown, I mean, it is it is very different place. Now, there is one thing I wanted to say about the, our transaction. So this is a little, this is pivoting subject matter wise, if you don't mind if I, I talk about it, because it was a really crazy thing in the way we bought our house. This place, we, you know, we found it on Street Easy. We did not have a broker, right? And so there, we did have a really good lawyer, but we didn't have a broker. And um, so the process wasn't easy. <laughs> it was great, but it wasn't easy. And this is the key to why we got it so inex so I don't say cheap, but we got it um, so reasonably priced. So we what we this is a, a four bedroom house in Midwood, Brooklyn. It's a townhouse, and we have a yard and a garage. Um, when we got it, um, and the real estate agents were. Um, were less than savory, I would say. So um, the buyers ended up um, really liking us and wanting to sell us the uh, house, except we couldn't get a loan. The bank would not give us a loan in 2014. And some of this had to do, even though we had had a loan for a, a really long time, um, but we could not get a loan. Um, and part of the reason was the we were... Um, we live in Midway, the, the train is right outside the above ground train. So it's the Avenue, uh, sorry, it's the, it's the Q train and we're at the Avenue J stop. And so it's the train station is, is we're facing it. So there's this little area like 15 feet or 20 feet behind our backyard. And then there's the elevated platform for the train. So the bank said that we were so close to the train that it was uh, not a valuable property, that it was actually, they were asking too much for the property. The second reason why we, we couldn't get the loan is the house hadn't been renovated. So this is a house that was built in 1915. It's all original. It's original tin ceilings, original glass, like everything in the house is original with the exception of the kitchen was renovated in 1972 and the bathroom was renovated in 1958. So I'm saying like renovated only to like, like we don't even have kitchen cabinets, you know? Um, we don't, like it was renovated in 58 to, to like give us proper plumbing, you know, for the 20th century. So that for the bank, that was not considered valued. Whereas if you went to North Brooklyn, those type unrenovated apartments are considered to be like the most valuable apartments. But because of this location and being so close to the train, it was not valued. And so we wrote a four or five page letter to the bank saying um, how much we valued the place and why we thought it was actually the value that they, um, it was not overpriced. It was actually the price that we wanted. So, um, you know, talking about the architecture of the house, talking about how important it was for us to be close to the train because of our travel, because of our work, because I was always traveling late at night um, to Times Square. Um, so fast forward a little bit. Um, we couldn't get the loan. They wouldn't offer it to us. And so my lawyer, who's wonderful, Bob Dubno, he said, do you think you can get a lower price on that house? And I was like, I think maybe we can. And so we went directly to the seller and we said, listen, we can't get the loan. Would you be willing to take a lower offer? And they were like, yeah, okay. 
And so we came up with something that was $75,000 less. I think it was six, $670,000. And um, they accepted it. Yeah. And the, but the, the owners, the sellers accepted it, but the real estate agent did not. So what they did is they took this real estate agent, had our money in escrow, which was, I believe, $75,000, which was the down payment. 70, 70, uh, yeah, right around 70,000, 75,000. They put the house back on the market. And I happened to find, we had this feeling just because there was a lot of things I will, you know, actually I'll tell you his little story. But so I went on Craigslist and I found this house back on the market. So they were trying to show it again while it was in, in escrow. We, I, we call, I called my lawyer immediately, sent him, you know, uh, screenshots of the listing. And we called, we called right away the seller and we're like, okay, this is off the table. We're not, we're not gonna, you know, we're, we're rescinding our, our offer because you put this house back on the market. There are so many things that can go wrong. So if you don't have the time to really, especially if you want to get these deals, you got to put in so much time to sort of watch it all out. Totally worth it though. I mean, you know, we ended up getting it, right? We got it for the lower price. The whole process took six months because we couldn't get this loan. So if you don't have a real like strong stomach to handle New York state real estate, particularly in, in you know, for lower price real estate, you it's like not probably good to do. So I had a very different experience when I bought this apartment. Danielle, you're going to die. It was like the easiest thing <laughs> you could you could ever experience. My ex-husband and I, we came up to this neighborhood. We looked at four apartments and this was the last apartment. And we were like, yeah, okay, well, this is how much we'll offer you. And the broker told us what number to put in, which was 465, because the seller had accepted that number and the previous buyer fell through. We bought it for 465, no problem. It appraised for 495. We, we automatically made 35,000 when we bought the apartment. It appraised for $30,000 more. Co-op sales, you know, they take a long time here in New York. So it took four months, but it was just smooth as silk. No problems. Well, those are both wonderful <laughs> stories. <laughs> Polar opposites. What has been the most positive experience from this real estate game that you've played over the years? The positive thing is that we have a, a house that we love, you know, and in our light, I mean, we love our house so much. It's so much a part of who we are. We, you know, have, we entertain quite a bit, you know, it was cook and parties and it is, it's our family, right? There's so many, like people come here and stay with us. And I would say it's, it's the quality of life is, is so much better um, having, having, of making these choices. And I wouldn't change it, even if we make or lose money. It's to me, it's um, hopefully we'll make it. You know, if we lose it, um, that's the way it goes. But uh, but I would say I don't think we're going to lose. It. I mean, it has appreciated since we got it. And um, yeah, I would say quality of life is is really more important. And I don't care about how long any commute is. I don't care. You know, of all the things you know in that maybe I cared at some point in my life what neighborhood I live in. I don't care about any of that anymore at all. I have a slightly different a take. I love having an apartment. I love owning a piece of property. I think what's most important for people outside of New York to understand is that when you live in a co-op, you're a real community and 
people take care of things, whereas in rental buildings, people might not necessarily recycle correctly, or they might not throw their trash out, which is a huge thing, particularly during the summer months, because you'll have cockroaches and mice running everywhere. And that's the last thing anybody wants in their apartment and their building. But what I love about owning my place is A, as a designer, I get to express who I am and I can impose that on the walls without having to deal with a landlord saying, no, that color faints too dark or no, you can't put wallpaper up. What I also love about owning a place is that there's a sense of community. I have neighbors on both sides of me that I can depend on. I have neighbors up and down my building. I live in a, a 80 unit building and I know half the building. Um, and so on any given day, I am saying hello to a half dozen people. We have, uh, um, we have spring and fall parties and the whole neighborhood or the whole building will get together and we'll do a potluck style thing and we'll just congregate. During the pandemic, every month at least, we would do one socially distanced cocktail evening, you know, out in our courtyard. And people in my neighborhood, it's small enough where I can walk down the street and I can say hello to a half dozen people. I might not always know their name, but I see them on the same train every day. And, and we know them. My son has a neighborhood and a group of people um, he's known since birth. And I think that's really important. This, there's only one person who cuts his hair. <laughs> you know, it, it's just really having that tight knit community, I, I think is so important, especially when you're coming from a home where a parent has decided to leave and cause all kinds of emotional and psychological upheaval. It's, it's great to, to have some, um, I'm, I'm hugging myself, nobody can see that. It's just great to have some sort of support network there for him. You guys have both purchased real estate and it seems that financially it has benefited you. Do you think that other designers or other artists, should everybody try to get some property? Why wouldn't they? I think for, uh, I mean, I'll speak from the, from the eye here. Um, I think that if you are a theater artist, I don't feel it's a particularly sustainable career. Um, I think, and I do see as younger folks really, you know, diversifying their income sources and diversifying their platforms of, of design. I think if you're kind of, if you narrowly, same way with narrowly focusing your ideas of like what your life could be or your house could be or your neighborhood could be, narrow define, narrowly defining your income source, I think is, it will be problematic. And I think as you age, um, you setting up things. I mean, the reason why we're okay now is because we made choices, we made smart choices in our 20s, actually in 30s and so if we hadn't made those sort of like more I would say you know maybe boring choices or um you know we were very conservative with our choice financially with our choices and I think that's why we're able to have more freedom now and I think as you get older particularly as a person in their 50s now looking like what does it look like for my, for my 60s um you certainly can't rely on theater like it will not pay you know it will not give you the light the kind of retirement that you need 
Well, I would quibble with that. <laughs> you know, I too was married to a stagehand and I know what a local one stagehand makes. And I would say if you're a stagehand, you can retire on a pension. You do make a lot of money. The designers, unless they have a hit show, they're the ones who are struggling. I'm specifically talking about theater designers. What real estate ha has been an ability to actually survive. Of course, if you spend more than what you can afford, then it's going to be, it's not going to help you. But if you save money and you actually get money, you get a place that is a that is something that you can, maybe it's more than what you wanted to spend, but look, oh, I had an associate, uh, my associate Craig Napoliello, he bought his apartment in, I'm forgetting the neighborhood, but it's not, not Yonkers, but it's close, it's up north. He bought his apartment in maybe a lot, maybe five years ago or six years ago for a hundred and... 70 maybe? 165? Yonkers. It's is, not all the way in Yonkers. It's still, you know, he's maybe it's Riverdale, you know, five years ago, that might've been possible. The trick is not about, you know, should theater artists invest in real estate? I think it's how do theater artists make enough money to afford real estate? Real estate has gotten so obscenely expensive here. You know, I consider my neighborhood to be one of the last affordable neighborhoods in Manhattan. When I sat on the board, my co-op board, I, I would look at people's application packets and, you know, they're a senior VP at blah, 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 or they're a principal of blah, blah, blah. And, you know, these are highly successful people who have managed to come up with these sizable deposits, these down payments that are needed. Unless a theater artist makes the decision to live in the Bronx, which is fine. There are plenty of beautiful areas of the Bronx. I've looked at moving there myself uh, or Yonkers or something like that. There aren't a lot of places where you can kind of scrape up $30,000 and have enough money to put as a down payment in New York. It's just, unless you're independently wealthy, you're shut out of the game. I don't know though. I and mean, that's, that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. Like I actually think you have, there are some places it just takes a lot of work. I know. And, and I'm like, quibbling with that again. <laughs> I, yeah. And I, and I think you're both right. The answer is always, you can figure it out. If you're working, you know, six days a week, 16 hours a day in the theater, you don't have time to figure it out. But like Danielle says, is like, they went after that apartment through ups and downs and kept at it. If you really want it, like if you prioritize it that much, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. But that way, it, it's going to have a lot of hurdles. It's going to take a lot. I want to add to that. I, I had to stop working for a period of time to focus on this. So, and I, you know, I teach, so I teach at Brooklyn college. Um, I wasn't teaching at the time though, but you have to, it, you, it's, it's making decisions. If you're spending all your time in the theater, you're not going to be able to have other things and do other things. So the diversifying your career, I think is key. I think the idea of there's one way and I'm going to be a theater artist for my entire life, I feel like you're going to, what you're doing is sh you're shutting yourself off to mo so many opportunities that might be right in front of your face. I totally agree. Doing this podcast, the more designers I talk to, every time I talk to a designer, I come away with, I got to stop designing or I have to design less. Or, and anytime I talk to anybody else doing anything else, I'm like, I got to do something else. <laughs> But but I but I haven't I haven't pivoted yet. Like I still say, oh, I'm a lighting designer. But hey, you know, I haven't designed since December. So it's been four months. So am I really a lighting designer? Come on, Ethan, get your shit together. <laughs> I think what you said, Ethan, is really good, though, because here's 
here's what I think this is, this is the, gets into the psychology of this is you're asking yourself, am I still a lighting designer? Because you haven't designed a show. Yes. You know, and I say, we are all, I'm going to be a set designer until the day I die, even though I may be designing landscapes. You're always a lighting designer. It doesn't matter how much you pivot into other things. You're a lighting designer that's doing a podcast. You're Beth is a, um, a theatrical lighting designer that's doing architectural lighting. It's the idea of identifying ourselves as one thing is the problem. It's we are putting our own, like again, we're putting our own boundaries upon ourselves. And if we, you know, we have to open ourselves in the theater, open ourselves to doing a bevy of things. We're always still who we are. I don't think, I think we've been on this sort of competitive, this ladder climbing, you know, systematic, you know, it's a I mean, sort of systematic racial hierarchy structure that is not serving any of us very well. Kind of getting rid of these titles, what we do, who, how we identify, is going to help us sort of free us to imagine another life. That's really interesting because then I think it starts to delve into American culture and how does American culture contribute to this, right? You know, if you go to Europe, people don't automatically, when they meet somebody, start identifying themselves by their profession. They talk on an intimate, personal level. We lack the capacity to do that. I would say, yeah, that white people have... White people? Yeah. It's a very different... Living in a non-white community, the the way the community functions, the way families function is very, very different. You know, the way religion functions in the society is really different from how I see white theater. So I think we, we have a lot to learn. Honestly, I think we have a lot to learn. I mean, there's three white people having this conversation. I joke that the demographic question is my favorite question. Like I, I'm uncomfortable asking that question, but I also think it's important that we have context, that all these answers and all these discussions are coming from our perspective. And that's going to, very wildly. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, if I was a different color, would I would my parents have been able to help me uh, in the very beginning? No, I, I think we all know the answer to that question. Probably not. I'm curious, Ethan, is is it your your premise or is it your belief structure that you think probably the most secure way to building financial health as an artist? No. No. Okay. <laughs> for, for me, it's just I've had all these conversations and real estate comes up. Uh-huh. The real estate conversation we've had today is you both purchased homes. There's a huge difference on purchasing real estate for quality of life versus you know, I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to buy a rental property out in the Midwest somewhere that it's it's a lower price, I can afford it, and it's going to give me a little bit of money and I'm going to build some equity. And it's it's solely going to be an investment. Sure. There's so many aspects to real estate and this is just one. Got it. Real estate has given us money to, and then the money has given us a safety net to do the things that we don't necessarily do for money, right? So it allows, it does allow me to do activism work because I have a home that I don't have to worry about losing this home. I don't have to worry about there's a lot of things that it's allowed. So, but it's, so it's a, the, it, it's so interesting because these, I think we're both talking about life quality, life, or even not even quality, but the idea, like almost like philosophy of life, philosophy through real estate. I mean, I think real estate is, real estate to me talks is so much about race. It talks about inequities. It talks about um, securities. It talks about um, 
people's identity. There's so many things, their religion, you know, there's so many things that real estate connects are, is a connective tissue with so many things in our lives. So it's like to talk about real estate, it's an ongoing conversation that's really complicated and complex. And Beth talked about education, you know, it's like in the way people make choices based to where they live in, in, in school districts. So it's a really deep and long conversation. And I think only a small fraction of it is about money. Just a couple a couple more financial questions just to wrap us up, which is what is some financial advice that you would give to yourself back when you started your career? Invest. Invest immediately. Invest as soon as you get out of college, start investing and invest every single week and make smart choices about every every dollar that's coming in, invest a certain portion of it. I, I would agree with that sentiment. I think I would also say really look at your overhead be mindful of it and don't pay attention to what others are necessarily buying or wearing because it's going to hold you back from making smart financial decisions. And I think particularly here in New York, it's so commonplace to walk down the street and you can have a very wealthy person wearing the latest and carrying the, you know, the most expensive Hermes bag walking next to somebody who has nothing, you always see this disparity. I think it's very easy to get caught up in having stuff, put that all in a corner in a box somewhere and just focus, try to develop goals and focus on them. I I love both of those answers. What Danielle said, which is every week, invest every week, like not every month, not every quarter. Don't think about it every so often. Every single week, invest. And I, I think that frequency is a really important point. And then, Beth, you had a really good point, and I forgot what it was. What did you say? Oh, overhead. I learned that from Danielle. No, but, th- <laughs> but that's really important. Keep your overhead low, because John Lee Beatty, he said that too. He said, I accidentally kept my overhead really low, and ta-da, my income grew, but my overhead didn't. Other people left the industry and left the city, and I, I survived. So, but I just want to add on to that, which is, yes, keep your overhead low, but I know lots of artists at the lower end of the income spectrum whose overhead is very low. I want to push on your point, which is once your overhead is as low as it can be, you then have to make more money. You have to make more money. The the overhead can only go so low. I'm talking to myself, really, Ethan. You have to make more money. (laughs) You're totally right. And the other really important thing is, yes, it's important to keep low overhead, but also have health insurance. Don't skip on that. And I think artists so often, they they make that choice and they choose to skimp on health insurance. I'm somebody who got very lucky. I had a major health crisis in my mid twenties when you're supposed to be super healthy. You know, thank God I had medical insurance. All right, so final question. Where can people find out more about you? You know, I have an Instagram account. I don't really post to it that much. I have a website. I disabled it, actually, because I was too cheap because I wanted to keep my overhead low. (laughs) Well, I, I write a really short bio, too, on my company's website. So I don't know. I guess you have to meet me. Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about social media is Instagram. We're all sort of out there in some ways and maybe less maybe not as great. I mean, I love Instagram. I love the the democracy of Instagram um, because I think designer, younger designers can reach us. Um, it's just, the, you know, I mean, I'm in co- constant contact with designers all the time. So you email me, you'll find me basically. And, and you can find my, I mean, I'm, my email is my name plus Gmail. So an Instagram, you can generally find us in that way. I would say, yeah, the idea of websites are a little bit dated, but you know, I mean, I know folks still look at websites for sure. 
I'm accessible. And if somebody wants to pick up the phone and call me, they can always call me and I'll spend an hour, no problem, talking to somebody. Thank you both for having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was our episode with Danielle Worley and Beth Taramsha. My takeaways were quality of life and non-financial factors play into purchasing a home. Appreciation does happen, but it isn't guaranteed. And diversify. Just as owning real estate can diversify your financial portfolio, make sure your income sources are also diverse. Sometimes to be a better artist, you need to have income that is separate or adjacent to your art. In our patron-only episode, we discuss more about inequity, climate change, pivoting, and a wild story about the broker that sold Danielle her most recent home. Access those outtakes at patreon.com artisticfinance. Patrons at all levels get early access to the episodes, the extended interviews, and a private podcast feed. And remember, as always, if you're not ready to become a patron but you want to listen to the outtakes, email me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and I will share the audio with you directly. None of us today are giving advice as to whether purchasing real estate is right for you. I've compiled a list of pros and cons to consider if you're thinking about purchasing property. Pros. Appreciation. Historically, houses are worth more as time goes on because currency devalues with inflation. Deductions. You can deduct the interest payments off of your taxes, whether or not you itemize. A real asset. Stocks and bonds are imaginary, nor can they act as a home. Equity. You build equity as you pay off your loan. Or you can build equity by making improvements to the property. Diversification. It diversifies your financial health, because if the stock market crashes or your pension fund goes bankrupt, you at least have a place to live. What are the drawbacks of real estate investing? The cons. Depreciation. Appreciation works in reverse, and a property can lose value over time. Taxes and maintenance. Property taxes and maintenance costs will be with you as long as you own the property. Liquidity. Property is an illiquid asset. You can't quickly sell a home for market value. You might need to move first before being able to sell. And like Danielle said, in a city like New York, it can easily take six months or longer for a real estate transaction to go through. Equity loss. If a hurricane comes and knocks the roof off or a pipe bursts, your property may be worth less than when you purchased it. My final thought is that our discussion today was about quality of life, home, and community. Yes, finance was involved in purchasing the properties, but these were not intentionally or solely investment decisions. Investing in a rental property or in a REIT or a real estate company is a separate conversation. Check out our episode 42 with Matt Piceni for a perspective of a real estate investor whose intent is to make money. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.